Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Challenging Education, the new podcast from Cognita. My name's Beth Kerr, and I'm the Group Wellbeing Director at Cognita. And I'm Simon Camby, the Group Education Director. Thank you so much for joining us today for this short 20-minute timeout. Wherever you are in the world and whether you are still in lockdown or whether you're adjusting to life back at school, I hope that you're well. This podcast is aimed at educators both within Cognita's global family and beyond it. And today we're going to be focusing on what the new reality for education might look like and feel like after lockdown. Today we're going to think a little bit about the current pressure that people are under, but what this might look like in the longer term with some positive changes after COVID. We're both highly aware that to many educators it might well feel like Groundhog Day and that there's no end in sight. But the reality is that this period will end and I suspect that the future will look very different. Now, over this lockdown period within education, we may well have achieved massive amounts of cultural change in just a few months. And today we are looking at some of the advances that have been made and how they may continue to influence our profession. Now, to help us do that, I'm really, really pleased to welcome onto the podcast someone who I've been privileged to work with over the last few years. Sir Kevin Collins is the former chief executive of the Education Endowment Foundation in the UK. Having worked in public service for over 30 years, Kevin's career started life as a primary teacher in London before moving into school leadership. He later became the director of children's services and then the chief executive of Tower Hamlets Council in London. He then moved to lead the Education Endowment Foundation as the chief executive for eight years. Sir Kevin now chairs the Youth Endowment Fund and is a visiting professor at the Institute of Education in London. He was knighted in 2015 for services to education. Sir Kevin, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Now, over the years, your work has involved lots of problem solving in education, very heavily grounded in evidence. So what are your thoughts around the role that evidence can play in the current context when we're thinking about COVID? I don't think we'll know for a long time, Simon, what the impact of this is. I mean, I think we're having to be uh, innovative, uh, use our ingenuity and our wisdom, and teachers are doing this all over the world. I'm absolutely amazed by what teachers are doing, and we're going to learn a lot from all of this. Absolutely. It's really humbling, actually, just to see the lengths that people are going to in order to meet the needs of the children. It's just fantastic. What do we know about the impact and value of digital learning? Well, I think we have never seen anything like this in the explosion and the application of digital learning in children's lives. And um, previously, we've had quite a few studies which indicate that um, just giving children devices and connecting with them in and of itself doesn't make that much difference. But what we're now seeing is more thought about the way they're being used. And the Education Endowment Foundation, which you you mentioned that I work for, only um, recently published a review of distance learning and came back with what might sound like obvious points, but we need to keep remembering them when we're involved in distance learning. The the teaching quality is more important than the lessons delivered. So we have to keep that focus up of great teaching, using good feedback, setting things out, explaining, you know, being engaged with our children, making sure that kids have access to the right technology, of course, is, is particularly important. The peer interaction in distance learning turns out to have value. So how do you engage in opportunities for children to young people to work together as well as sitting watching the teacher teach from the front, if you like, or from the screen, supporting independent learning, which I think is is actually very interesting in, in digital and distance learning. How do you get the kids to work independently and then come back to the learning which is being guided by the by the adult? 
And, and finally, remembering that different approaches to remote learning suit different types of content. So, for example, the evidence indicates that games are particularly good for learning foreign languages. Quizzes turned out to be really useful for retrieving knowledge. So there's a different kind of set of techniques that we need to think about. But you get to the same fundamental point. It's the quality of what you do rather than the nature of what you do that seems to make the biggest difference. Now, we've seen within the Cognita family teachers doing some amazing things online, and, and you and I have witnessed this. We've watched lessons recently. What are the limitations of digital learning? What, where can we struggle with it? My observations and reflections are that there are a number of kind of <laughs> obvious areas. So the social interaction of education, because it is a, an intimate social act, really, in the end, is difficult. However well you educate by distance learning and, and, and online, there is something missing. Um, and so there's always going to be a limitation. It kept reminding me, I was thinking of it as I'm preparing for this conversation, it kept reminding me of when I really wanted to focus on a child in my class, my instinct was to bring them nearer to me and not allow them to be far away. So there's something about the physical, having children near you when you really want to um, support them. And then the other, the other thing that I've observed, which I think is interesting, is silence online and digital silence is difficult for people. There's the idea you have to keep filling the airways, the noise uh, has to be there. And yet in classrooms, we know the value of silence. We know that sometimes what you want is that energy and the focus of children just working as you are there with them. There's not necessarily always has to be somebody talking and somebody doing something. And then I think the key thing and the evidence, of course, is so strong on it is that peer learning and collaboration is very, very powerful. Um, and that's hard, I think. I think we're learning more about it, but I think that's tricky online. That's just really interesting. And I think, you know, just that great reminder that, that learning is a social and emotional act. It's not just a cognitive process. There's social and emotional interaction taking place there. Now, I know that you've got some quite strong views around well-being. You and I have spoken about that. So I know that Beth's really, really keen to explore some of these areas with you. Yes, what a great opportunity. Um, so, so, Kevin, thank you. I, I suppose I'm thinking that Academic progress is, of course, important, but we know that learning effectively is influenced by our feelings and emotions and our overall well-being. So what are your thoughts about well-being and its impact on learning during this online period of learning? Is there any evidence that we can point to? I'm really glad you made the point around the relationship between academic learning and well-being. There's a whole range of non-academic development or growth in children which are highly correlated to academic development. So you're right to say these things are interrelated. I guess the um, thing about online learning, it's more difficult to notice how a child's actually feeling. It's more difficult to catch some of those nuances, some of those um, nonverbal messages that tell us uh, mm. as, a, as a teacher and, and as, a, as, a, as a colleague how people are feeling and how we can respond to them. Um, and I think the, um, again, I, my point earlier, that, that teaching is an intimate and to a degree physical act as well as a cognitive one. And, um, and that's harder for us to gather. And yet that, they're crucial kind of cues and important information in, in well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose, given this, do you think that when schools do return, that a regular timetable uh, immediately might not be effective, you know, sort of going straight back into maths period one, because there is an anxiety that we've missed, you know, a lot of teaching. So what are your thoughts about allowing time for students and staff to, to re-engage with the school environment when they when they first come back to school? Oh, I think that's going to be absolutely crucial, Beth. I mean, I think the, the orientation 
just the experience again of physically moving around the environment, the encountering of a large number of people, some you know well and some you don't. There's going to be um, a whole set of things we need to support the children with. And then I think there's a whole question of what you might call uh, COVID anxiety. Um, is this going to happen yes. again? Am I at risk? Am I safe? All of these issues are going to have to be thought about and they have to be talked about. And it's not going to be helped, I think, if you just go slam straight back into a sort of no excuses timetable. I just I couldn't imagine doing such a thing and, and actually thinking hard about the well-being of children. They have to be ready and prepared and feel safe to learn. Yes, absolutely. And having that safe space to explore what's happened in the last few months is, is critical. The other thing I wanted to ask was that there's a sense that adversity has had the effect of bringing people together through this common understanding of our frustrations. You know, For example, being willing to open up a little bit more about what's been going on at home just before a team's call. I was on one yesterday and um, I spilt the coffee all over the floor about three minutes before the call. I probably wouldn't have shared that usually with, with colleagues. Colleagues I've never met before. But how can schools retain that level of connection post-lockdown? So I think this is actually the exciting bit. There's no doubt that this is a global tragedy. Some people have suffered enormously and even lost people they love and care about. So not, none of these opportunities comes as something you would wish for. But there are some opportunities. There's something I think very interesting about the small group online learning communities that I'm observing which I think could be a feature of here to stay. And it's a new kind of safe space for teachers to be with children or children to be together. There's definitely something about home study. I think this has broken us through that glass ceiling of the boundaries between school and home. I think you're going to see much more integration across those lines. I've been particularly interested in the lessons in Cognito where parents have been involved. We've known forever that the evidence on parental involvement, engagement, education is overwhelming. But, you know, the more involved parents are, the, the better for children's progress. And I've seen lessons now where parents and children together are learning and I, with the teacher directly. And I think that's so exciting that that might continue. So I think there's lots of new um, relationships which are going to supplement and augment what we do, which I think people will keep some of that going for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel that parents would probably have a new appreciation for their teachers um, because I certainly have uh, trying to teach twin seven-year-olds at home. So that was fantastic, Helen. Thank you very much. You just indicated there just some of the changes that you think we may see in the future. If we were to zone right down into a classroom, if you were to pick one thing that you think we may see in terms of teaching and learning practice in the classroom or pedagogy, what do you think that may look like? What might be post-COVID in a classroom? I think, Simon, I always return to the sort of classic cycle of uh, plan, teach and assess. Mm. And I think we're going to see implications across that cycle. So I think in the planning, teachers are now much more familiar with technology. Many were, but now many more are. I'm beginning to see the potential to iterate on existing materials, to personalise resources. So I think planning is going to change. I think teaching is going to be more blended. Uh, you're going to see people herald lessons. You're going to see teachers not spend so much time in classrooms. I think hopefully doing some of the low-level explanations and descriptions and actually spend time in classrooms tackling misconceptions and going for deeper learning as the, the earlier, if you like, lower-level introductory stuff is done through the technology prior to arriving in the class in a kind of flipped model. And then I think in assessment, my real aim is that we see teachers freed from the, uh, the drudgery of low-level marking and low-level teacher assessment work and actually spend their energy and their, their wisdom focused on 
the longer plan, that going into deeper bits of misconception and seeing their children in, in a more um, more integrated way. So I can see lots of um, changes in what you might call an augmented model. I'm with you on this, and, and that's an absolute hope for me, that I think if we can see this more blended, augmented model, where uh, it, it almost allows teachers to focus on the, the more uniquely human things, where they can really bring their skill and expertise, you know, this, this could be a really positive next step for us as a profession. And if we take that one step further, have you got any thoughts around the implications of those potential changes for teacher learning or professional development? What are your thoughts around that? Well, I'm hoping again, Simon, because so much of what we do, whether it's the way we work in the classroom or the way we develop teacher learning, is, has been traditionally rooted in an almost Victorian model, which in itself was built around the, the kind of demands of uh, heavy industry after the Industrial Revolution in Europe. And um, I, I'm hoping we're now seeing a kind of, kind of, for the first time, a real step change as one of the outcomes of this crisis. So for teachers and their learning, you know, you, you hope it's going to become again, I keep using this word, because this is what technology allows you to do, to be more personalised and dynamic, that you're responding to what the teacher needs as and when they need it, rather than waiting for the right course or whatever. It's much more dynamic. I think we're going to have teachers themselves developing a more test and learn culture, because one of the aspects of um, using technology in an integrated way that I've been describing allows you to evaluate the impact of your teaching much more quickly. And if you follow the work of someone like John Hattie, you know that the phrase no nine impact is the gold dust of education. How do I know what, how the children responded now so I can change what I do tomorrow? So I think you're going to see much more uh, test and learn culture in education run and directed by teachers themselves. And I think you could even move to simulated classrooms where people can test out what they're doing, vary their teaching. Because once you start a lesson, as we know, it's really hard to vary what you do from what you did yesterday. We've seen that evidence in things like dialogic teaching. But you'll be able to test and change the way you teach using technology as you simulate classrooms at lower stakes. So I'm hoping you see a much more dynamic and um, exciting way of thinking about teacher development than the old um, sit and listen to me as I talk to my PowerPoint slides culture. Yeah, it's hugely exciting. And, and as I said at the start of this programme, I think we, more than just the technical change, I think we've seen culture change. And I've just noticed when I'm dropping into lessons, you know, I try to drop into quite a few lessons every week, I can just see people's confidence growing. And, and people have just been so amazing and so professionally generous in terms of sharing ideas and resources. It's It's been truly humbling. The care is to make sure that what this does is free teachers, free teachers to yep. be more thoughtful, to, to respond to that, what I call the intellectually curious act of teaching and use the technology to supplement, not create an additional load. Here then we've got the potential for technology to help us to do things in a better and a smarter way rather than to add on another layer. You're absolutely correct. I mean, the fundamental relationships are with our families and we've talked moments ago how it changes that potentially. With our children, uh, I think we can do so much more with much more depth and then with our own personal learning. But this, we've got to free up some space and outsource some of the low-level stuff we've done for too long to the technology so we can spend more time working at real depth and engaging our children in new and exciting ways. But I'm worried that we don't free it up. I'm worried that we just put another layer on. And I think that's, that's something we've got to uh, keep a guard against. 
So there's a word of caution there as well. There's yeah. potential excitement, but we need to get it right and we need to be really mindful about what we do. Exactly. As, as we mentioned, when you touched upon it before, that um, some of the, the, the other positive outcomes have been the, the interaction with parents and some you know online parent-teacher meetings, for example. There's been some really good feedback on that. Um, so have you got any reflections about potential future ways of working? Again, not just thinking about students and staff, but, but parents. Where can we take this further on than it is already? I think the uh, Simon's point about the opportunity and then the caution. So the technology creates a, an opportunity for us to um, to really share the learning of our in school and at home. And I think we should do uh, more and more of that because I think the evidence is with us. But there's also protecting for the children this um, the space they have when they're at school. So there's somehow that you have, um, and I don't think it's about secrecy, but it is to do with a degree of independence, a growing feeling of your own place in the world, as well as your place with your parents. And this is going to need careful kind of navigation on our side. So I think there's a way of bringing parents in deeply, and you can take them into the lessons, into the content, into the material. There's no end you could do to that. But at the other hand, being careful about watching for where does the child have their own kind of personal space and their rights to say, well, this is this is what I do here. So I think there's um, a, an interesting conversation because previously we all we've ever been doing is kind of moving towards the parents, which is right. But we also, with technology, have to work out where do we want the limits to be of that so children have their own kind of rights and their own privacy as well. It's actually really, you're sort of saying that this endless opportunities is going to bring with it challenges as well and and I suppose that goes back to your point earlier about really taking some time when schools go back to just reflect and think about what you want to do to you know ensure that all our families as well are prepared for the new way of of learning and the new way of living a great deal of leading is out of this i think will come from young people you know yeah. as ever when you face a when you face a new world it's interesting that um Old people like me are trying to kind of describe it. In fact, we're we're least sort of skilled to do this. This is their world. And we need to talk to them and engage them. So I think pupil voice when children return is going to be really important that we hear their um, their anxieties, their concerns. We we open up the opportunities of how would they, you know, what do they think about these new ways of working? That's such a great reminder that listening to students can always help to guide our decision making. So that concludes today's episode of Challenging Education. Thank you to Sir Kevin Collins. We really appreciate all of your insights. Thanks, Simon. It's been a pleasure. And if you found this episode interesting, please subscribe and give the show a review on your podcast app and share your views with us on social media. You can do this by tweeting us at Cognita Schools and including the hashtag CognitaWay. And if you know someone who may be interested in the things we discussed today, please do share our podcast with them. So that's it for today. We'll be back with another podcast in two weeks, this time focusing on bringing learning from the corona crisis into the curriculum. So for now, from Sir Kevin, Beth and myself, please stay safe, stay well and see you next time. Take good care. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.